Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, ending with 24. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketalormar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years after they served Ketalormar, in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketalormar and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and Zuzim, and Ham, and Ebim, and Sheva, Kirathaim, and the Horites in the mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazen, Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Ketalormar, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Emraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Alisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt there by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eskul and brother of Anar, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his three hundred and eighteen trained servants who were born in his own house, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Obah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Ketalormar and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out wine and bread. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing, from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. Here we find the cycles of Abram and Lot continue. The land promise is plundered by invaders who took tribute. Abram defeated them, chased them away. His victory was the power of God behind him. He waited for the blessing of God instead of taking in worldly delights. Let's see how some of these things came about. The kings of the Jordan rebelled against 
Ketalormar in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Now these city-stated kings rebel in the 13th year after 12 years of tribute. They've paid tribute to, the, to, the, to these kings up until this time, and now they rebel. Five kings rebel and battle against four kings. This is verses 5 through 12. The four kings beat the five kings severely and plunder the cities and their goods. Among the goods and the slaves taken as tribute, which should have been paid, Lot is taken. Remember, Lot was first dwelling near Sodom, and here he dwells in Sodom. I mean, what possessed the man to dwell in the city? Second Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 says, And he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. You remember, Lot had looked at the land, but now he is in the city. After Lot is taken, a man escapes, and he lets Abram the Hebrew know of Lot's capture. Now from this title we see two things, that Abram is known throughout all the land, and that he's designated as coming from the line of Eber, which is in chapter 10, verse 1, or a Hebrew. The righteous line of Eber is the great-grandson of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Seth, the son of the righteous line of the woman, and of Adam. And Mamre, the Amorite, comes and enters into a covenant with Abram and helps Abram just as God had said those who bless you I will bless and so ultimately Mabri the Amorite is blessed as a result of the plunder but the word used in this section is covenant they established a legal situation by testimony or oath a pact and agreement and they take their 318 men they pursue and overcome the kings and rescue Lot Abram's brother in those days that was a large garrison to fight with. Gideon had a few men in Judges chapter 7, and David had a small group of a few hundred against Saul in 1 Samuel. We see, though, God's hand working with Abram. No doubt, we'll see that God's hand is working amongst Abram, his people, to save back his brother. Now, this word brother means close relative here. And Abram goes and he wins him back. Now, in verse 17, the king of Sodom comes out to greet and reward Abram. Verses 18 to 20. Uh, verse 17, rather. The king wants Abram to be an ally. But something else happens. In verses 18 to 20, Melchizedek, the priest, the Kazen, comes to meet Abram. Now, Melchizedek is a very interesting figure. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness or king of justice. The Hebrew is Malach and Tzedek. And he comes from Salayim, a short version of Yerushalayim, which means city of peace. He brings out bread and wine and they partake of it. After they eat, Melchizedek blesses Abram, El Elyon. God Most High blesses Abram. To bless means to endue with power, 
to endue with prosperity, to endue with longevity. And after this, they in turn bless God. They give glory to God. They praise God for who He is. They called on His name, His attributes, who He is. God had won the victory. And so, Abram tithes a tenth of the plunder to Melchizedek. Now, hold the thought on the bread and wine the tithe for just a moment. In verses 21 to 24, the king of Sodom wants to reward Abram, but Abram refuses. The king wants the people, but he tells Abram that he will give him the plunder. But Abram replies that he swears with an oath, or he raised his hand to God. Whenever you see someone raise their hand, when they raise their hand in the benediction, or when we raise our hands in prayer, that is an oath, swearing an oath. And Abram swears that he would not take any plunder. The king of Sodom could then take credit, where credit was not due, because the battle was won by God, not by the pagan, immoral king of sin. Instead, Abram gives the plunder to the Amorites, who are then blessed by God. Abram is saying that if he takes the king's gift, it would be as if the king of Sodom was allied in victory with him, in covenant. So Abram rejects that and continues his allegiance with God alone. He does not acknowledge the king, but God and the blessing that he receives from Melchizedek. He has received the reward he longed for, or at least a partial shadow of it. He tithes to Melchizedek, demonstrating a love for God, and he gives away instead of taking. He does take the blessing, but he rejects the temporary and keeps the eternal. And in return, God blessed him for that. Now that is what the chapter has as an overview, but in pulling out the doctrine from the text, one of the things that we have to think about is Melchizedek, the Eternal One. Who is this Melchizedek? Because without understanding who he is, the rest of the chapter, the point of the chapter, will not make sense. He appears suddenly. He gives a blessing. And then disappears just as quickly. No more mention of him until David sings of him in Psalm 110, where he says, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now that particular psalm is a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and the covenant of redemption that he comes in, in that he is a priest forever. But he's in this order of Melchizedek. However, this particular aspect of the psalm and this place in redemptive history gives us no more information than what Genesis 14 gave us. It does give a little more application of what Melchizedek means in Scripture because it says, priest forever. What makes Melchizedek stand out in the psalm is that, number one, he is a priest forever. And number two, that he is a foreshadow or prophecy of Christ to come. David sings about Christ and the office of his kingship and his priesthood. But then there's no more information here. If we want to see more information, we're going to have to go to the New Testament that holds out for us a little more information in Hebrews 7, 1-3. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest 
of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest forever. Now, verses 1 through 3 in the Greek are one long continuous sentence that gives us some insight into the character of this Melchizedek figure. He's king of Salem, but we knew that. He's priest of the Most High God, but we knew that. He blessed Abram, was tied to by Abram. He is the king of righteousness and of peace. We knew all of those things. But then it says, he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having either beginning or ending of days, being like, keyword like, the Son of God. And because of this, he remains a priest continually. Now this is all comparatively. Here, Melchizedek is like the Son of God. And the new information that Hebrews gives us here shows us one of two things. Either Melchizedek is a Christophany, which means that this is an appearance of Jesus Christ in the flesh here in the Old Testament, or he may be a foreshadow or type of Christ to come, but a real person. He is like Christ in that he has no genealogy, in a book of genealogies, which is what Genesis is, which foreshadows an eternal aspect of his priesthood. It means God has established this priestly order forever. And this order is different from the Levites. It's different from Zadok. It's different from any other. And it alone has the power of eternity behind it. Melchizedek foreshadowing Christ's priesthood would make this order of priests eternal. Not eternal in being, but eternal in purpose and order. Now, Melchizedek is not literally Christ in the flesh here. This is not a Christophany. Here's why. He is priest and he is king in a city. He is, as Hebrews says, like Christ. And the thing signified cannot be the thing and the thing signified at the same time. Much like the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is bread and wine. But when Jesus took the bread and took the wine, it was not that he was taking himself, it's that he was taking that which signifies himself. Melchizedek is not literally Christ, he is a real priest. He's a real person that communed with Abraham. He's a real person who blessed Abram. He's a real person who received a tithe from Abram. He was king over Salem. Salem. A real place. He dwelt there. But he is like Christ in that he is a foreshadow of what Christ will ultimately bring. He does demonstrate a shadow of blessing and a type of the Christ to come. Jesus Christ and his priesthood is eternal, like Melchizedek's. And all his servants recognize that eternal lordship. That's why just a little later in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and following says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and become higher than the heavens. Compare that, then, with Psalm 110. Melchizedek's priesthood is an example of the eternal priesthood of Christ. Melchizedek's priesthood is not that of Aaron. Melchizedek's priesthood is not that of Zadok's. Melchizedek is the greatest priest that ever existed. Having no father and mother, no genealogy, comparatively, none of that is mentioned in the book of genealogy, and thus he foreshadows the eternal Christ who is, in his being, eternal. Melchizedek came to bless the lesser, and to show Abram, by his very presence, a bit of Christ, a slice of eternity. It would be the same as if I were going to bless the President of the United States, or the Sultan of Baran, and tell him, I'm going to bless him. The greater would bless the lesser. Melchizedek, nevertheless, comes to bless Abram, and Abram realizes his lesser status. The greatest patriarch, the greatest man in the world up to this point in time, realizes his lesser status and tithes to Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek's priestly lines hold the power of messianic fulfillment. He's looking for the heavenly city and the God of the heavenly city. And the tithe is an outward expression of this. Now, for those of you who don't understand tithing, understand that this, this is before the law, this is before priests, this is before temples, this is before the Levitical priesthood and all of the sacrificial system, this is before the tablets of stone and the law are given to the people. The tithe is the outward expression of dying to the world and demonstrating that to God. In that demonstration that Abram desires the blessing of eternity. Abram sees the eternal in Melchizedek who foreshadows Christ who holds the power not only to give temporary relief with bread and wine but holds the power to cancel sin and death, of which the bread and wine would ultimately signify his body and blood, his work. Everything about Melchizedek speaks to Abram in terms of the greatness of eternal things over the king of Sodom. That which is temporary, that which is fleeting, that which is transparent. Jesus then fulfills everything that is prophesied about his coming and comes in the eternal line of Melchizedek. That is the actual argument of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus comes not like the Levites, but that Melchizedek, his line, his eternal priesthood, that is the priesthood of Christ. And so the lesser, the Levites, in the very loins of Abram, tithe to the greater, Melchizedek and Jesus is of that line now that we see and understand what the Lord is doing here and on helping us understand Melchizedek and his purpose to foreshadow the coming of the Lord Christ well secondly we must remember 
that the offers of greatness in the world should be utterly detested in light of the eternal blessings found in Jesus Christ. The king of sin, the king of Sodom, is contrasted with the power of eternity in Melchizedek. What sin offers is nothing compared to eternity. The king of Sodom knocked on everyone's door this week, in some way, in some manner. But how can worldly riches compare to the eternal salvation and blessing which will ultimately come through Melchizedek's priestly line in Jesus Christ? Well, the simple answer to that is that it can't. Would you want to live in Sodom? What a horrifying life to live in the midst of Sodom, in the midst of sin and wickedness, when the mind is regenerated, when the heart is renewed. How could Lot have possibly dwelt there? The scriptures say that he vexed his soul. The whole account is a contrast between the problems which sin and worldliness bring you and the blessings of God through the eternal salvation offered to us in Christ. Not Lot and Sodom. That choice was made in chapter 13. Rather, here a choice again is given, a test for Abram. And Christians must say, along with Abram, no king of Sodom, I don't need your silver, I don't need your gold, I want no part of your worldliness because I have the hope of eternity and salvation in Christ, which can't compare with your offer. Now that didn't make Abram poor. It simply made him wise. Abram even had to rescue Lot from the problems which he placed himself in because Lot was worldly in living among the Sodomites. You'd think he'd learn from this experience. You'd think he'd learn from being captured. But what does he do? We'll find out in chapter 19 that Lot has to be rescued again. He's not looking at the eternal aspects of things. The Apostle Peter still calls Lot righteous, but he did vex his soul living among the wickedness of the people of Sodom. So we see that Melchizedek's glory far outshines the wretchedness of Sodom's reward. Sodom's reward is really no reward. Sodom's reward is temporary pleasure in life. Abram wants the eternal life that never passes away, which is why he rejected the riches of the plunder. A thread? He brought it right down to the very basics. Look at my robe here. This particular preaching robe that I wear is made up of cotton, which is a plant. But bring it down to its very essence, it's thread. The sandal straps are just pieces of leather. And Abram wants the eternal, not a thread, but even down to a sandal strap. He wants the eternal life that never passes away. The Christian populace today has entrenched themselves in the secular. Look at the church in America. Grow churches using the world's corporate strategies. So, Christians, professing Christians, or so-called Christians long far more for what the world can offer instead of what Christ offers. They so desire instant gratification. The aspect that I see 
in the secularization of the Christian family is the overwhelming emphasis placed on what jobs and work can accomplish because jobs and work get us what the king of Sodom offered Abram. Wealth, money, sustenance, temporary satisfaction. And in and of itself, these things are not bad. They are actually commanded under the cultural mandate where we are supposed to take the garden and expand it. But when they infringe and oppose the eternal aspects of our life in Christ, they become abominations in God's eyes. They become, as we read earlier, with the rich young ruler, his God, our God. The emphasis in our homes should be on family worship, should be on prayer, study, eternal things. All these other things will be added by God's providence. But if we aren't looking for that which God desires us, seek first the kingdom of heaven, the other things will not be added. Those of the seed of Abraham are those of faith in the eternal, not the temporary. And we really need to ask ourselves what is important. The temporary king of Sodom or the eternal aspects of life foreshadowed in Melchizedek and realized in the Christian life because of Jesus Christ. How then, in thinking about these things, should we apply them to ourselves? Should we apply them to our here and now? Well, nothing should be more important to you than eternal things. It is a wonder why this contrast keeps re-emerging in the life of the patriarch this far. Why is it that Genesis keeps going over and over and over these things again and again? Well, this is the crucial difference between what is truly eternal and important and the temporary things of the world. What is the focus in your life? My father used to work for a newspaper in Massachusetts. For many years he worked in the camera department, enlarging and sizing every picture which went into the newspaper and the text. He used to take uh, uh, pictures of the entire newspaper pages, create the metal sheets that ultimately go on the printing press to print the paper. He was basically quality control. And he used to go out and he would buy other newspapers and compare his work on the front page with their work on the front page and how clear and concise the shooting of the pictures and text came out. But see, my father had a keen eye, a trained eye, to see when things were out of focus and when they were just right. I would look at one of those pictures and he would say, look at that picture, this is not good. And I wouldn't be able to really see it until he began to point out, look here, look here, look here. He had a trained eye for these things. And that's the kind of eye that the Christian needs on spiritual things. Ones which are focused keenly on the things of God. When we went over the series on true biblical reformation, we went over Colossians 3. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Why? Well, for your life is hidden with Christ and God. So you have to ask yourself, where have you trained your eye? Your eye is a, a demonstration of what it lies in your heart. Is it as sharp as a bronze? Where are you loyal? To the church and to Christ or to the world? To the eternal or to the temporary? Training the eye is carried over to training the heart in the things of God. That which is eternal encompasses 
all that is temporal, that's true. Because regardless of where God has placed us, we are going to arrest culture for eternal things. But we must train our eyes. We must have a keen sense of that which is eternal. Maybe you're a mother, a nurse, a hairdresser, a manager, a lawyer. Maybe you're in collections. Maybe you're a student. Maybe you're a producer. Maybe you're a child. Whatever it is that God has given you to do, do it with all your might, but with the eager expectation of being rewarded with the glasses of eternity on. Money, clothes. There wasn't any earthly booty that could satisfy Abram. The plunder that he was gaining, or could have gained, from these kings of which he defeated, he could have kept but he'd rather commune with the priest of the Most High God than with the king of Sodom. And it does not matter where God has placed you. Rather, it matters to what end you use that which God has given you. I mean, Abram could have said, Oh, stupid lot. Let him rot out there for all I care. But, how many times, how many times possibly, did Abram counsel his foolish nephew from being in that city? How many times do you think they visited together? Abram could have just said, he deserves to be taken, living in that city. What is he thinking? But Abram's eyes were more interested in Lot's relationship with the Most High God. And he had eternal things in mind. He had the covenant family in mind. If we focus on the world takes our focus away from Christ and His work. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve both Christ and the world. The moment you turn your eyes towards the king of Sodom, you become enslaved by foreign kings. But when you realize the king of righteousness and of peace bid you to pay your life's tribute to him, your eyes become locked on eternity and the things of God. And God's promises are that which is much more powerfully realized in your life. It really comes down to surrounding what you think is a priority. And it asks the question, it answers the question rather, what's most important to you? Even in the way that I deal with sermons. I find sermons to be very weighty. Sermons carnally speaking, have the power to build churches or to destroy them. There are some churches that have a planned curriculum because they have a building program, so they have to preach certain things to spark the giving. Sermons do have the power. Charismatic speakers do have the power to build churches up by numbers or destroy them. But in reality, sermons bring us closer to heaven or closer to hell. Sermons are explanations of God's self-revelation to us. And I find eternal things too weighty and too important to joke and jest about in the sermons. I find eternal things too weighty and too important to slow the sermons down with stories and anecdotes and, 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 and songs or poems or things that are funny. I mean, I have 35 to 40 minutes, realistically, to give you a slice 
of Jesus Christ and His Word. And that slice is supposed to carry you over for a whole week. Sermons must focus on eternal aspects. And the message must bring forth eternal salvation and eternal blessings of Christ clearly. Richard Baxter said, I must preach like a dying man to dying men. In all of Jonathan Edwards' 1,500 sermons over 28 years, you will search in vain to find one joke or one humorous remark. Because he knew, with deep conviction, the difference and the importance of being focused on Melchizedek, the king of peace and eternity, instead of the king of Sodom. It's interesting that the Bible doesn't have very much in the way of humor when we see the preaching of the Word of God or dealing with sin. So that's the problem. Sermons deal with the problem of sin and the fallen, uh, fallen condition of men in sin. And it's not humorous. Melchizedek brought Abram eternity. He didn't joke. He didn't jest. He didn't use cute anecdotes and stories and poems. He blessed him. He brought food for the soul. Now, it's no doubt that through all of the scriptures there's always some commonality that like Jesus will talk about a sower and how that relates to the kingdom of heaven or a tree and how that relates to faith or fruit and how that relates to good works. He always used things to illustrate, but that's not the same. We're talking about the weightiness of eternity. Melchizedek brought Abram eternity. They had communion together. It is no mistake that bread and wine were used. And in that action, though it was of physical substance, so clearly set forth in the New Testament as the Lord's Supper as invoked by Christ, Melchizedek is seen as a figure of Christ. He was aiding Abram for physical thirst and physical hunger. But Jesus who comes, of whom Melchizedek is foreshadowing, takes away the hunger and thirst of all that believe in him so that rivers of living water flow from him, so that they hunger and thirst after righteousness. And Abram, recognizing this as he partook of Melchizedek's spiritual blessing, then blessed Melchizedek with a carnal blessing and tithed to him, seeing him as the greater. And in that, demonstrated his dying to the world. If you want to understand what tithing is about, think about this passage. Think about Abram's rejection of the thread and sandal strap and instead the giving of such to Melchizedek. Dying to the world, looking for the city made without hands and the blessing. Abram being dead to the world ties to him. He's a good steward of what God gives him. And eternity in this way should engulf everything we have. If eternity engulfs every area of our life, especially of that which seems like it sustains us, the blessing gives way and we are sustained in a much different manner than we would have first thought. 
clothes and money and things and, and cars and houses. They sustain us in certain ways. But the Bible clearly shows us that Jesus Christ, the eternal high priest, who intercedes for his people, ministers eternity to us. And eternity trumps the temporary. Ecclesiastes 3.11 states, And he, that is Christ, has set eternity in the hearts of men, except that no one can find out what God has done. But the preacher in Ecclesiastes goes on to show that the reason men fail to see eternity is because of their wickedness. Because of their sodomness. Christ must make a spiritual transplant so that people can see eternity. That is why we find Abram, the father of the faithful, holding on to the blessing of Melchizedek because God has worked faith in him. He implanted eternity in him. And that is why we see Lot wallowing as a slave before earthly kings who die and pass away and wither like the noonday sun withers the new cut grass because he didn't have his eyes fixed on that which was eternal. It's the difference between holding on to the things of eternity and holding on to the world. Your life will show forth which one of those you desire. I mean, your tongue is not that which shows us. Not just what you say, but what you do. People say all sorts of things. People say they are Christians. People say they love God. People say they follow Christ. But the life will show forth whether or not that's true. Is the cross of Christ and the power of His resurrection and the blessing of eternity what you cling to? Is it most important? Is that first and foremost? Does it move you to give of the highest part of the heap your best to Him? Or is it that the coolness of the silver or the glimmer of the gold or the enticement of the world, does that place itself as preeminent in your life? Is that what you're after? Let it never be that a Christian would trade eternity for the world. Your focus must be on the blessing, on the greatness of that priesthood which lasts forever, the priesthood of Christ, eternity. Take pleasure in the blessings of God instead of worldly delights. Let us pray together. Mighty God and everlasting one, we so desire that our hearts would be given over to you. We consecrate ourselves to you. We give ourselves over to you. Help us that our heart, our mind, our eyes would be set on eternity, on the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek, of Christ, who is the High Priest, who intercedes for us always. Send forth the Spirit of God, knowing full well, Lord, we cannot do these things on our own, but wholly by the Spirit of Christ. We ask for your grace. We ask for your help. We ask for your mercy in these things. In Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.